Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. This week, I'm with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Jennifer, in the race for state superintendent, there are three candidates so far, and they're all Republicans. What does that mean for voters? So as of right now, what it means is the race will um, be decided before uh, the general election. And because our state has closed primaries, only Republicans will be able to vote. Um, So unless you're a registered Republican, your uh, vote will not you will not be able to vote for state superintendent unless something changes between uh, now and the primary. And there could potentially be a runoff, right? But then it's still a Republican-only ballot. That's right, yeah. Unless a, a, a candidate from another party decides to, um, you know, join the race, then that's what we're looking at right now. Okay. You, you found uh, that some engaged voters, uh, one named Erica in particular, were getting antsy about possibly being unable to cast a ballot in that race because they aren't registered Republican, what are they doing? So, you know, one thing that was interesting is, is like you said, Erica, who I talked to, she's a former uh, public school board member. She, um, you know, is very engaged. She votes um, for pro-public education, really. You know, she's been a Democrat. She's been an independent. She's been a Republican. And she really just votes for a candidate over party. Um, She switched uh, back to Republican because she wanted to ensure that she would have the ability to vote in the Republican primary for the state superintendent. And I I think the the thing that's important to point out is, you know, changing your voter registration is fairly easy, but there's kind of a blackout period that covers the candidate filing period. So, um, you know, March 31st is the last day to change your um, your registration. And um, the candidate filing is mid-April. So if you don't get it done before that, you can't wait until the candidates all file if, if that happens in mid-April. See who it is, right? That makes sense. So people changing party uh, just because education is their hot topic. They want to be able to vote for superintendent. That's right. And, of course, we don't know how many are actually doing that. Erica counted about five, which is obviously not a lot. Um, There's really no way at this point to uh, get a good handle on how many are doing that. Haven't we seen this trend before uh, in another election? (laughs) Yes, we have. And that's kind of what I found so interesting, you know, back in uh, 2014, Um, when Joy Hoffmeister was running, there was a pretty big movement of teachers who switched to Republican um, in order to uh, vote for Joy in the Republican primary. Is that, you know, you mentioned teachers in particular. Do you get a sense that it's really teachers that are that focused on an education vote, that they're willing to change parties, that it's that important to them? uh, Or Or does that bleed over into parents and other stakeholders? I think there is some bleed over. I mean, Erica, who I talked to for the story, uh, she's not a teacher. Um, She is a parent and a a former school board member. She's very tapped into the education community. So I think it's those kinds of folks who who education is kind of a primary issue for them. Got it. 
so what are the prospects for a Democrat to run? Is there anything on the horizon? You know, I talked to a couple of Democrats. Um, nobody, there's no names out there yet. Um, everybody kind of urged patience. Um, you know, we still have till April. There's plenty of time. Um, but the reality is the window for uh, fundraising is narrowing. I'm sure it is. So uh, if if there are, we have three people in the race so far. Um, there are no Democrats that we know of on the horizon. Are there other Republicans that have been making noises? Are there any independents that have been making noises about running for Hoffmeister's seat? You know, not that I've heard. There were some other names tossed out, um, you know, late last year. Um, but I think they probably would have filed by now. And, um, you know, the the governor has kind of thrown his weight behind Ryan Walters. And so I think maybe some folks would um, not run to support him instead. Um, just briefly, once that campaign really gets rolling, what are the hot topics that they're going to be talking about? Well, certainly with Ryan Walters, we've seen a few, uh, or I've seen a few videos of him talking so far. Uh, it's a lot of critical race theory. We did see Ryan Walters weigh in on the schools closing today. Um, you know, it, he's unhappy that schools are, are closing down because of COVID cases. Um, so it certainly could be an issue. Got it. Thanks, Jennifer. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative reporting at OklahomaWatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. And this week, I'm with Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. Trevor, you're starting a new beat for us. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so for the past year, six years, I've covered the Capitol and politics for Oklahoma Watch. Um, during that time, I've covered a lot about voting rights, misinformation, things like that. Um, in the past year and a half, I've written extensively more about that as we've had issues with the election, with COVID. So we kind of wanted to formalize my beat to more shift it towards democracy and covering misinformation. You know, what that means is I'm going to be looking at things like, you know, money in politics, how transparent is our government, um, how safe security and open are our, our, our elections, and how can we tackle misinformation whenever we see it. Uh, so uh, in a story uh, recently, um, you want to take a look at, at who in Oklahoma is still pushing the so-called big lie and that there was widespread election fraud in the 2020 election that cost uh, Donald Trump the presidency. What did you find in Oklahoma? Yeah, so what I found is that there's a number of politicians in the, in the Republican Party that are still pushing this, this big lie, as you called it. You know, we've seen people right after the election raising a lot of concerns. You know, we're now a year after the January 6th insurrection. And what we found is, you know, a lot of people in politics here in Oklahoma are still pushing some of those misinformation or disinformation. You know, we've seen the chairman of the Republican Party, you know, state that, you know, Trump was a legitimate winner. Um, you know, I specifically wanted to look at whether any attitudes change in the legislature. Um, right before the election was certified, 37 lawmakers signed onto a letter asking Congress to reject millions of votes in other states. 
I contacted all of those lawmakers. Most didn't respond. The ones that did just doubled down on their belief that there is widespread fraud. Um, you know, again, all the evidence has showed that's just simply not the case. Uh, now, some of those people were even questioning the results here in Oklahoma, which which was a clear Trump victory in yep. Oklahoma, right? Not even close. So wh- what are they questioning here and why? Yeah, like you said, uh, President Trump won 77 of Oklahoma's 77 counties. Um, you know, we saw just in the last few months, um, Mike Lindell, who, who many people might know as the CEO of MyPillow, he's a big Trump ally. He suggested at this um, symposium that there's thousands of more votes that should have went for Trump in Oklahoma. Um, you know, those concerns percolated so much that the Secretary of Oklahoma's Election Board even launched an internal investigation, concluded there's no evidence of any of that. Um, but, you know, he said he still heard a lot of the complaints or concerns from lawmakers, from members of the public. So this shows that some of this misinformation or disinformation is still seeping its way through. It's it's not even not only going to the public, but some policymakers and lawmakers and people in power. That was one of the things I thought was interesting in your story, that the people running the elections, uh, right, um, even even sounded a little personally offended mm. uh, at the accusation that there was anything wrong with the count. Did you get that vibe when you were interviewing them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the are, you know, the foundation of democracy is that elections are fair and that, you know, the peaceful transfer of power, you know, needs to go on. If people start questioning that, you know, question a whole lot of things. And that's that's a worry for people like our election board secretary, you know, who has said repeatedly that our, you know, our elections are some of the safest and securest in the nation. And to have people criticizing that just goes to show you how widespread some of these beliefs and, you know, talking about elections in Arizona and some of these battleground states, it's even more contentious and the facts are even, you know, more manipulated by people that want to manipulate it. And why do the experts uh, think that's a problem? What are they worried about? Yeah, so I talked with a number of experts and, you know, one of their big worries is that January 6th could be a rehearsal for something in the future. You know, as I was saying, if you don't trust the electoral process and your guy loses, you're going to claim fraud, you're going to you know, perhaps organized like we saw happen on January 6th. A lot of people are worried that could happen again, and that's a real worry for a lot of people that are running elections and that care about elections. Uh, any, just very quickly, uh, any of the other state leaders, um, what are they saying? Yeah, it's been very quiet from a lot of state leaders. People like Governor Stitt and our congressional delegation really haven't been talking about it too much. They kind of just kind of want to let it move on at this point, I think. Well, thanks, Trevor. Long Story Short is the weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to the Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative reporting at oklahomawatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thank you for listening. This week, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. Keaton, while COVID cases statewide are surging, there are just a handful of confirmed infections in state prisons. That's kind of surprising. Do we know why that is? Yeah, so likely not one exact reason why. Um, what I can say is that 70% of the state prison population is vaccinated at this point, uh, the DOC told me recently, um, which is a rate higher than we're seeing 
across the entire population of Oklahoma. Um, also, we know that there were widespread outbreaks in the state prison system um, in in the fall of 2020, and we saw some more, uh, not as widespread, but some more outbreaks with the Delta surge that happened last fall. Um, so it's, it's likely a combination of um, vaccinations and previous infections, uh, but we are starting to see outbreaks occur in other state prison systems, and experts say that it's not the time to, for uh, corrections officials to let their guard down. Well, talk about that a little more because that's uh, that's unusual. Oklahoma is the anomaly on the good side of the fence, at least at the moment, where uh, where infections are lower than the general public, and as you just mentioned, not true in other states. So, do we have a sense of what the difference is there, or? or how bad it might be getting in, in other states? Yeah, we've seen, if you look at a place like Connecticut, um, which has a lower prison population than us, um, has around 600 confirmed cases right now. Um, so once it gets inside a facility and, and people are living close together, um, you can wear a mask and all of that, but it's, you know, especially with this new variant being so contagious, it's quite easy to spread and um, can get in there, you know, despite masks and vaccines. Um, the, so it is challenging trying to contain COVID in, in a prison setting. Um, at this point, what experts are, are recommending as far as what prisons should be doing to try and contain the virus, um, mass testing is one suggestion, you know, surveillance testing, even if someone is symptomatic, trying to get a sense of if it's entering a facility or not. Um, and also, you know, universal masking. In our state prison system, they're required for visitation, but optional for staff working inside the prisons. Um, so those, those are the main, you know, suggestions to try to keep COVID in prisons at bay at this point. And you, you mentioned that uh, in Oklahoma, 70% of the prison population uh, have, uh, have gotten the vaccine. Have booster shots been a, made available to prisoners as well? Yeah. So the, the Department of Corrections told me they started doing mass vaccination events for boosters at the end of November, and that continued through December. Um, and some of those efforts are still ongoing. At this point, uh, about 20% of the state prison population has gotten a booster so shot. Um, so it's, it's, you know, about probably a third of those who are eligible. So it'll be interesting to see if, if more get the shot. Um, of course, the, the challenge there is, is, you know, education. You may not, if you're in prison, you don't have the same access to, you know, material that you might on the outside as far as doing research about the importance of, of getting the vaccine. So that's obviously something that falls on the corrections department. And also, um, you know, if you're, there's the history of medical experimentation on, on prisoners and, and things of that nature that, that folks incarcerated are aware of. So um, those are some of the challenges trying to, you know, get your vaccination rate up if you're, um, you know, in, in charge of a in charge of a prison, but um, those efforts are ongoing in state prisons. Have Have you heard anything uh, in particular about efforts to get more boosters out or get that vaccination rate even higher than the seventy percent? Um, I haven't heard any new specifics from the Department of Corrections. Um, what they told me was, uh, we're encouraging vaccinations and we're um, providing the booster shot to anyone who wants one. Um, when the shots were first made available back in the spring, they um, started putting information about it up in commonplace TVs and said uh, they're distributing flyers. Um, 
that sort of thing. So the information is out there, um, but we haven't seen, you know, we've seen some states do like town hall style meetings or bringing in formerly incarcerated people to talk about the vaccine. Um, I haven't heard of similar efforts here, but that's uh, something experts say can be effective. And finally, uh, what about visitation and volunteer classes? Are those continuing as scheduled in prisons? Those are still continuing. Um, it, we'll see if infections rise. Those could be something that are uh, temporarily suspended. Well, thanks, Keaton. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to the Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.